1: To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.
0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com?
2: Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Molly, and I'm Kristen confession sometimes i forget people's birthday on purpose so forgets like in quotation marks uh-huh. just because i like sending belated birthday cards better than regular birthday cards why because like when i'm looking for a birthday card in the store all the ones i'll read for a regular birthday are just not funny to me mm-hmm. but then i'll read the belated ones and i think that they're funny somehow they're just funnier than regular cards to me well i hand make all of my cards molly so i don't i don't really have that issue <laughs> Of course you don't, Kristen. You have none of my issues, but a whole pack of your own. So no, no need to quibble. Um, but the reason I brought up belated birthday cards is because we have a little bit of a belated birthday to celebrate.
1: Yes. It, on uh, June 23rd, 1972,
2: Title IX was born. Our, yeah. our little bundle of joy. That's when it was passed by Congress. A few days later, we missed this birthday, too, July 1st. It was signed by President Richard Nixon into law.
1: Yeah, it was. It was. It came out of Congress's womb and was spanked into <laughs> life by President <laughs> Richard Nixon. But it wasn't really until a few years later, much like a child, that it really got
2: legs and started walking around. <laughs> it's true. You're going to carry this metaphor on for a while. <laughs> as long as possible. Well, let me um, let me read you what the birth announcement said to borrow your, your metaphor. Oh, I love this. And Go by that, I mean, let me read you the text of the law. Okay. It says, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance.
1: Mm. <laughs> now, one thing that I don't hear in that law, Molly, is anything dealing with sports or athletes. That's right. But that's what we associate with most now, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes. Title IX is responsible for getting a lot more girls and women involved in school athletics. But the main driver behind uh, Title IX had to do just with access to education
2: and promotion
1: as a faculty member.
2: So you want to go back in time and and see what led up to the glorious birth of Title IX? Yes. The
1: woman that we have to thank for Title IX, who has been called by the New York Times the godmother of Title IX, is a lady named Bernice Sandler. And Bernice Sandler, back in the 60s, was teaching part-time at the University of Maryland, and uh, she was teaching while she was getting her doctorate. She finishes her doctorate, and she's really excited because there are seven openings in the department that she wants to work for. And she applies for one of the positions, and the department head says, Bernice, I like you. You seem nice, but I'm just not going to give you the job. And Bernice says, What? I am an excellent student. I'm an excellent teacher. Why on earth would you not give me one of these seven open positions? And he says to Bernice, he says, Bernice, let's face it. You come on too strong for a woman. Well, fr- fight fighting words.
2: No, she doesn't fight. She goes home and cries. She's miserable. She Dems regrets. then's cry- Dem- crying words, then. <laughs> she doesn't fight till later. We'll get to how she fights later. But, I mean, she goes home and basically... Uh, regrets all the time she ever, you know, spoke up too much in class, spoke up too much in staff meetings. Mm -hmm. She regrets everything she did that might have made her too strong for a woman. And it's actually her husband who helps her figure out that the idea of just being too strong for a woman is sex discrimination.
1: Right. Because this is happening in 1969. And although Bernice points out in, um, an article on her website about this whole story that although sex discrimination was illegal in certain circumstances, a lot of the laws prohibiting just discrimination in general didn't cover sex discrimination in education. For instance, she points out that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act prohibits discrimination in employment on the basis of race, color, religion, national origin, and sex, but it excluded educational institutions and their educational activities i.e. faculty and administrators. And also, the Equal Pay Act prohibited discrimination and salaries on the basis of sex, but, again, exempted all professional and administrative employees, including faculty.
2: So, Bernice is being turned down for more and more jobs, and she starts reading about uh, the civil rights movement because she wants to figure out how uh, African Americans had broke down these segregated systems and found some form of equality. And what she comes across is this uh, report from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights with that had a presidential executive order that prohibited federal contractors from discrimination in employment on the basis of race, color, religion, and national origin. And this is my favorite part. There was a footnote, and Bernice says that because she was an academic, she, of course, read all the footnotes. And she found in the footnote that the executive order had been amended by President Johnson on October 13, 1968, to include discrimination based on sex. So it's there, it's just no one knows it because it's in a footnote.
1: Right, because the executive order was dealing with federal contractors and colleges and universities are federal contractors because they receive funding directly from the government. So what does Bernice do? She gets on the phone, and she calls the Office of the Federal Contract Compliance at the Department of Labor um, to raise this complaint, and she was immediately connected with the director because he was basically waiting for someone to find that very footnote and start challenging this law. And then um, she and the director get together. They started to strategize about how to... Bring enforcement of the executive order. She gets involved um, under the uh, Women's Equality Action League and basically starts a national campaign to end discrimination in education. And it takes a little while and takes a lot of. Mimeographing <laughs> to get this done. Um, and that, for all you youngsters out there, that was, that was a joke because, um, mimeographs were the predecessor to Xerox machines
2: and they weren't as omnipresent as they are today. Yeah. So it was kind of a it big was, deal. It was a big deal to be putting together all this paperwork and what Bernice did again, being an academic, she found evidence. You know, she was leading this lawsuit that was filed on behalf of all women in higher education. But in order to really have teeth, she wanted a lot of specifics. Um, on ways in which women had been discriminated against in terms of admission, financial assistance, hiring in higher education, promotions and salary differentials. So she is just putting together document after document and women are starting to hear eventually that this is going on and they're tr- they're pr- they're contributing their own evidence to this.
1: Right. Um And During the next two years, so this is from uh, 1969 to 71, she files charges against approximately 250. institutions, not to mention another hundred or so filed by other individuals and organizations, including the National Organization for Women. And among the, uh, the institutions that um, Sandler, under the auspices of the Women's Equality Action League, charged, uh, she points the finger at um, University of Wisconsin, University of Minnesota, University of Chicago, and I love this, the entire state university and college systems of California, New Jersey,
2: and Florida. Sandler was not messing around. She was not. And so, you know, she got all these women to send her evidence, but she also told all of them that they had to write their congresspeople. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way that she puts it is that they had to hire an extra person just to deal with all the mail that these women were sending about the, what was going on in higher education. So it, it was really a concentrated effort by a lot of people led by Sandler. And, uh, luckily they found a lot of Congress people who would go, uh, with the case to Congress and, and start to really chip away at this discrimination. Yeah. And so they held a congressional hearing about the
1: issue. And in the spring of 1972, which is actually two years after the hearing, um, we have, we have Title IX passed, but it wasn't passed as it was originally intended to be. It actually had to be slipped into um, the Education Amendments of 1972 because initially some Congress people were trying to pass the Equal Rights Amendment and have this included as part of it. That wasn't going to fly. And so they slipped Title IX out of the ERA, slipped it into this educational, higher education amendment. And then on, like we said, June 23rd, 1972, we have Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 um, passed by the Congress and then signed into law on July 1.
2: And, you know, what I kind of liked about Sandler's story is how she said, you know, that, you know, when all these hearings were going on, she really wanted to go out and lobby. And all the senators and uh, representatives she was working with were like, no, don't lobby. We don't want people to figure out what's in this bill.
1: Yeah, we kind of need to just be quiet about it, slip it in, slide it in under the radar.
2: And apparently only a few Ivy League schools worried that they'd actually have to admit women. Uh, She cites that Harvard, Princeton, Yale and Dartmouth were concerned that they would have to admit women in equal numbers because they had decided that there were specific ratios, sex ratios that were best for learning. And uh, she didn't, you know, those schools didn't want uh, the government telling them what those ratios were. So mm-hmm. that was the one stinker that came up. A few people, you know, she emphasizes very few, noticed that because athletics were administered by schools that they too would be affected by the bill. And so there was discussion on the floor of the Senate about whether the bill required educational institutions to allow women to play on football teams. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there was this discussion. They decided, no, women won't play football because it's, you know, you know, it's too dangerous. But they didn't have the foresight to think, oh, maybe this is going to affect other sports besides football. Right. But lo and behold, as we said at the beginning, now when we think of Title IX, I know that my mind immediately jumps to football and well, not to football, but to Mm -hmm. sports. (laughs) Yes.
1: Uh, Because Title IX is to thank for a dramatic increase in women's participation in college and school sports. For instance, according to the National Organization of Women, in the days before Title IX only 1 in 27 girls played varsity high school sports. And by 2001, that figure is up to 1 in 2.5 for a total of 2.8 million girls playing high school sports. And similarly, only 32,000 women athletes played on intercollegiate teams prior to Title IX compared with... 150,000 today, including more than a million dollars in scholarships for women, especially at division one schools. I mean, we still have the emphasis among, you know, NCAA schools for especially men's football, men's basketball. But as, when you really get down to these smaller schools, um, women's sports has really taken off.
2: But you know, since we do associate Title IX with athletics so much, I do want to point out that there were huge benefits just in education, things we probably take for granted now. Again, from the National Organization for Women, they point out that in 1972, women earned just 7% of all law degrees and 9% of all medical degrees. 2001, women make up 47% of law degrees and 43% of medical degrees. So, you know, we do have a lot of women in higher education, and we need to respect that Title IX helped us do that as well.
1: Now, as you can imagine, in the very... Tricky politics of higher education, in particular, and even just you know public education, enforcing Title IX isn't always an easy thing to do because when it comes to especially athletic money, um, you know athletic directors and departments are not uh, are kind of want a of hands off situation. It seems like they're not they're not really into the government meddling with with what they do. So. In situations where you have Title IX whistleblowers who come out and say, "Look, you know these these male coaches are being favored more than female coaches. We're not offering enough scholarships to women, et cetera, et cetera," um, there has been some backlash for those whistleblowers. But the law has actually built in provisions to protect. Those whistleblowers.
2: Right. And that comes from the 2005 Supreme Court case Jackson versus the Birmingham Board of Education. Uh, that dealt with a case in which a high school girls basketball coach who was male said he lost his job because he complained about the, uh, the, the different allocations of resources between the girls and the boys teams, things like the girls weren't getting as much time to practice in the gym. They didn't have, you know, the same kind of money that the boys had to spend. And just by, you know, bringing that to the school's attention, he said he lost his job. So the Supreme Court determined that not only did the law provide for that equal allocation of resources, it also had protection for the people who blew the whistle and said, hey, things aren't equal here. So since that case passed, there's been quite a few few cases where people say, I lost my job because I said something. And one of the biggest cases involved a settlement of $19 million. And so legal scholars are pretty, pretty pleased with this new development because now they know that schools have more of a impetus to just pay their coaches equally. Because if a female coach or a male coach somehow determines that, you know, things are unequal in terms of salary or if things are just an equal in terms of the allocation of resources, a settlement from a lawsuit is going to cost them much more than just doing things right the first time.
1: Right, but as you can imagine, there has been kind of a backlash to... The backlash, if you will, uh, because, you know, try, uh, cutting a check for, you know, $19 million for an athletic director who says that she was fired based on um, whistleblowing and sex discrimination um, is mind-boggling to some officials at these schools and in these athletic departments. And some people are still arguing that Title IX really – while it might be beneficial for women, is hurting men's sports. For instance, um I think about a month ago there was a story that came out kind of around the same time as the World Cup um, when the College Sports Council released this study saying that Title IX was really hurting men's sports, especially men's soccer. And their claim was that only 59% of Division I programs, which we mentioned earlier, Division I programs, are pretty heavily involved, especially in women's sports. Uh, the College Sports Council claimed that only 59% of Division I programs offered men's soccer compared with 93% of them offering women's soccer as a way to
2: comply with Title IX. Now the NCAA and the Women's Sports Foundation have responded and said that's a pretty skewed way of looking at those statistics, the College Sports Council study, because what those Division I programs uh, probably have is football. So they might be allocating more money to their football team than and then kind of shortchanging the soccer team. So it's more just about what the individual school is choosing. And, you know, the law does not dictate, you know, you can only offer football and not soccer. You can offer both as long as there are equitable resources for women who want to play sports as well. So that study about the Division One programs uh, garnered a response from the NCAA and the Women's Sports Foundation, who claimed that that was a pretty skewed way of looking at the statistics that, you know, it was hurting men's sports because there were so few soccer programs. Because in Division One, which was what this College Sports Council was looking at, uh, you've got football. You know, these other divisions may not have these strong football programs, and the individual schools are making the choice to invest in the football programs. And they made the point that Title IX does not dictate, you know, you can offer football and not soccer. You know, the ch- the schools are the ones that make that choice of, you know, we're choosing to have a football program that may come at the expense of a soccer program.
1: Right, because in Division Three schools where football is much less of a big business, 90% of the schools offered men's soccer teams in 2008-2009, according to that same college sports council's study, um, which is actually up from 81% about uh, 10 years ago. And among women's teams, the increase was from 78 to 95%. So like you said, Molly, a lot of it just goes back to, you know, colleges choosing which sports um, to allocate their resources to.
2: And as you said, and as you said earlier, that uh, individual schools don't like that government meddling. Maybe if they had their druthers, they would put a lot of money into men's soccer and men's football, but that's what often lead led to the women's teams getting shortchanged. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about how um, Title IX is enforced. There are basically three requirements that, uh, is, that are going to be looked at in terms of Title IX.
1: Yes, the Department of Education uses a three-part test, one of which is whether or not the proportion of female athletes is the same as the proportion of female students, um, whether or not an institution has a history and continued practice of expanding athletics programs for women, or demonstrate that women's athletic programs fully and effectively accommodate the interests of current and prospective female students. But under the Bush administration in 2005, there was a new policy that came up dealing with the third element of that um, Department of Education test that was kind of controversial for uh, proponents of Title IX. And that policy change allowed institutions to Assess whether or not an athletic program fully and effectively accommodated the interests of current and prospective female students by sending out an electronic survey to their students and having the women say yes, I think that there are enough sports offered at this school. Or no, I don't think there are enough sports offered at this school. And proponents of Title IX said, whoa, that is very, very flimsy data to offer us um, to say whether or not a, a school is in compliance with it. But the Obama administration recently went back and said, hey, guess what, we're going to do
2: away with that. So nixing this policy was not a good news to everyone. To some people, it was like, yes, now we can look at more realistic ways of determining interest for girls on campus. Other people were like, well, we don't know what else to do. This is just ridiculous. We're, we're coming towards a system where Title IX is going to mean quotas. Mm-hmm. And we've talked before, Kristen, about how quotas are kind of a, you know, slippery slope. People don't love the idea of quotas in terms of making sure
1: that women are involved. Right. And now as women are increasingly making up a larger proportion of college students in the U.S., some people have even questioned, you know, whether or not Title IX kind of needs to be reined in a little bit to give more opportunity to men. But that is something you know, that we'll, we will kind of let develop on its own, and it'll be interesting to track how that goes. But I think at this point, um, while, of course, we don't want athletics or educational opportunities for men or women to be hamstrung by government policy, there is evidence that Title IX has been beneficial, by and large, um, over the past 39
2: years for Girls and women in the U.S. Right. A large body of research shows that sports are associated with all sorts of benefits, like lower teenage pregnancy rates, better grades, and higher self-esteem. But up until 2010, people didn't know if that was correlation or causation. Was it possible that the girls who did have these lower pregnancy rates, better grades, and higher self-esteem just had things like parents that were supporting them? Was it just, you know, personal qualities that they just brought to it? But now there have been two separate studies that show that team sports results in lifelong improvements to educational work and health prospects.
1: Yeah, there was an article um, in New York Times by Tara Parker Pope detailing these two studies. The first of which is by Betsy Stevenson, who's an economist at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and she used a complex analysis to show that increasing girls' sports participation in fact has a direct effect on women's education and employment. And she says that changes set in motion by Title IX explained about 20% of the increase in women's education and about 40% in the rise in employment for 25- to 34-year-old women.
2: Now, the second study was done by Robert Kastner, who's a professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and his study looked at whether Title IX had made a difference in women's long-term health. So he looked at women who had been in high school in the 1970s when Title IX was taking effect against women from earlier years, and he controlled all sorts of influences like age, changing diets, et cetera, and he looked at their health outcomes and found that the women who had gotten the chance to participate in Title IX were far healthier and uh, had a 7% lower risk of ob- obesity 20 to 25 years later than the women who had not been subject to Title IX.
1: Yeah, and uh, Tara Parker-Pope points out that while 7% does not sound like a very huge number, no other public health program can claim similar success in terms of curbing obesity.
2: And Parker-Pope ends her article by saying that Title IX still has a ways to go. I mean, that far more girls and women could be involved in playing sports, um that there's still more boys playing sports. So she comes out sort of on the pro Title IX side. Whereas, as we mentioned, there are a lot of people who don't want that Title IX oversight when they're making plans about who's going to play what sport. Mm -hmm.
1: So while there might be some controversy today um, in terms of the future of Title IX and how heavily it should be enforced, whether we should dial it down, whether it should continue its, its march forward, I don't think that anyone can disagree when you look at the statistics charting the progress of women in education and in athletics and say that Title IX was not a positive step for women and also for men. Because to me, I think that anything that benefits women getting on an equal footing with men is a good thing. You know, we need to have as many women as men in education, teaching our kids, raising the young, coaching, whatever. You know, I think that a balance is good.
2: And you know, the but one of the sources we were looking at ju- did say that one of the biggest things that can change a guy's mind about traditional gender roles might be seeing a woman, you know, kick some butt on a soccer field mm-hmm. or to, you know, a woman who's kicking your butt in in class on a field if you're if you're she's a so coach strong. of your team. Yeah. So I do think, like you said, it's a it's a good thing. Happy belated birthday, Title Nine, And thanks, uh, Bernice Sandler. So if you have stories about how Title IX has affected you in your life, we'd love to hear them. And uh, the email address to send that is momstuff at howstuffworks.com.
1: So speaking of our email address, I have an email here from Mark in England. And notice I said England. And not Britain because Mark had, quote, a tiny quibble over my quote unquote British accent that Claire wrote about my now (laughs) my now the most famous email I think we've ever gotten. And he says, I've spoken to the Prime Minister, the Queen and all the gentlemen in
2: funny hats. Um he said (laughs) I'll stop that now. Oh, no, um, <laughs> don't. we got so many emails that told you not to stop, so I think you have to read the whole email in your accent. I don't think you want me to do that. So he said that while all of England is quite happy for me
1: to borrow the accent, I have to give it its proper name. He says what you're doing is an English accent. There is no such thing as a British accent as Britain encompasses Scotland, England, and Wales, we're prepared to let it go this time. But if you insist in calling your English accent a British accent, me, the Queen, the Prime Minister, Prince Harry, Prince William, etc. ad nauseum. Okay, I kind of improv there for a second. Sorry, Mark. Uh, we'll be compelled to come and recolonize you forthwith. We know you'd probably prefer this anyway, as you haven't achieved much since independence. Well, <laughs> apart from those moon landings, which we all thought would jolly nice, and podcast, Mark. Hey, come on! I haven't heard about any uh, any great British podcasts. I mean, English podcasts. Man, I'm I'm asking for a royal <laughs> butt whipping now. Um, also, if you wouldn't mind saying aluminium and herbs properly too. So thank you, Mark. A funny email that made our week. But yeah.
2: thank you to everyone who wrote in in defense of of Kristen's lapses in voicing. I've got a reading list from from Deirdre to close things out. Uh, Deidre has a very ambitious reading list. She is going to be tackling The Brothers Karamazov, Don Quixote, and Lord of the Rings. She also writes that she plans on seeing as many Shakespeare plays as I can get my hands on, and hopefully seeing a few, rereading the Harry Potter series, and rereading Jane Austen novels. So keep the list coming. Even if summer ends and you hear this months from now, we'll take your list anytime. And again, the uh, email address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also get in on the action on Facebook and Twitter. And during the week, please check out our blog. It's called Stuff Mom Never Told You, and you can find it at HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.
1: To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee. Sounds
0: perfect. This episode is brought to you by Pedigree. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it is closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive